What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina access and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in La Jolla, California at the University of California, San Diego as part of a series of shows from the West Coast that we are delivering to you over the coming weeks. Today's show focuses on military modernization in China under Xi Jinping, and I am delighted to be joined by one of the foremost authorities on that very subject, Professor Tai Ming Chung. Tai is director of the UC Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, or IGCC. He is a longtime analyst of and leading expert on Chinese and East Asian defense and national security affairs, especially related to economic, industrial, technological, and innovation issues. Tai, welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for taking mm. the time. Great to see you on the West Coast, Kaiser. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. So in a working paper that you were good enough to send to me and in other writings of yours uh, that I have come across online, you make the case that under Xi Jinping, China has really shifted into high gear and it's pushed to modernize and improve its military capabilities is, is really, really ramped up under Xi. In, in fact, you argue that under Xi, national security has become the top priority superseding even economic development. So give our listeners a sense for how that change has been made manifest. Are we talking just about budgets increased or the number of or types of projects being commissioned or new party institutions like this new National Security mm -hmm. Commission? Or what are we talking about when you say it's now top mm. priority? So I would say that when I talk about sort of um, the importance that Xi Jinping and his regime focuses on national security and on military modernization. I think it's a, it's a very holistic approach. And um, and I'm writing a book, which um, I'm in the midst about to, to finish, where I talk about sort of what is what I call a techno-security state, mm. right? And a techno-security state has different elements. There's the national security and military parts to it. There's the innovation dimensions to it. And what I see with Xi Jinping is, um, and he makes this clear, is that while his predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao in particular, they also talked about the importance of balancing security 
and development and sovereignty, which are sort of the, the core interests. And they said it's like innovation is very, very important. Xi Jinping said innovation is core as opposed to important. And there's a very important distinction. He moves it up another notch right. or, or two. And also in terms of military modernization, his predecessors talked about sort of um, there was a lot more pouring of resources and more sort of focusing on developing the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. And a lot of that was sort of uh, about making the PLA bigger, more capable. But Xi Jinping talks about it, it's like we've got to make that transition of the PLA being not just big, but being strong. Mm. And so what we're seeing is um, in that way, there's a focus about reforming. It's like uh, improving what it is, but moving the PLA to much more to the next level of, and he talks about this in terms of these timeframes, right? That um, by 2035, China will, in terms of its military modernization, will move from where it is now, which is sort of late industrial, beginning to move to the information age by 20, uh, and sort of, and also by sort of being a, a country that would be sort of in the second tier of the global military order compared to other countries that by 2035, that China will move into sort of the advanced information age for mm-hmm. the military, and it'll be in the top tier, that its military capabilities, its military prowess will be equivalent to the other leading tier one countries, those in Western Europe or Japan and, and the like. But then by 2050, to move up and to begin to challenge to be the world leader, to be right on the very technological frontier. So under Xi Jinping, a lot of this is like, um, I, call, I call what he says, this techno-security state, where it's this integration and balancing between innovation, national security, development, and understanding what the role of the state is in doing all of this. So the shift in priority is pretty clearly motivated by Xi Jinping's understanding uh, and the understanding of senior strategists around him of the international environment as Mm -hmm. it is right now. What does this security environment look to Xi Jinping? What does it look like when he surveys the world around him? That's a fascinating question. When Xi Jinping comes to power in 2012, he comes and there's this whole expectation that he'll follow what his predecessors are, is about focus on development. And that's sort of been the winning formula for the last three decades. But within sort of um, a year to two years, sort of by 2013, 2014, Xi Jinping has taken what I would call a national security turn. And a lot of that is predicated on looking at the threat environment because um, the rise of national security states is predicated on how they assess. And there's a phrase that he uses that he gets quoted on in April of 2014, where the first meeting of the National Security Commission takes place. And he talks about the outside world, but also domestic. Like inter- and he talks about like internal and external factors are the most complicated in China's history. Right. And so that's sort of... Which is um, an odd, odd claim to make, I mean, considering all the things right. that China's been through, but... It's, it's an odd claim, but it's like, but he doesn't make the claim that China's facing the most serious threats, right? It's not sort of like... Um, Just most complicated. Yeah, complicated. And so the, so the question is, what is complicated? It's like, what is the complexity? And so when you begin to look into that, it's like, um, it begins to make more, more sense because a lot of the complexity is about, it's like one characteristic, it's about non-traditional 
threats, right? It's like, I mean, and non-traditional threats, whether it's sort of on cyber or it's ideological or it's political or it's economic, etc. Those are very, very complicated. And the problem that Xi Jinping also points out is that the existing national security system is not designed to deal with these non-traditional. So it's complicated, and then it sort of it represents a real challenge because all these threats, like they don't know how to be able to cope. And another characteristic is that, um, and we see this in how they design the, the new national security system set up, is that it's in the past, they compartmentalize these threats. There's the external, and then there's the internal. And so you had the military taking care of the external side, and you had the internal security apparatus taking care of the domestic side. And they were very much separated. And Xi Jinping says, no, it's like it's increasingly integrated, right? And the internal and the external are very much part of the same thing. And so we need to redesign and deal with that. And you can see that. It's like, I mean, I mean, the most obvious case is Hong Kong, right. where it's it's not just about the domestic, but what's going on sort of amongst sort of like within Hong Hong Kong. It's the black hands. It's that external influence. And so how do you deal with threats that are not easily sort of um, put into various categories? Right, and categories? what he had been looking at in the later period of, of the Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao era are a number of the later color revolutions yeah, and, of mm-hmm. course, the Arab Spring uprising right. that mm-hmm. started right, right before he took office. Yeah. And, um, and his advisors very much emphasize that the, 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 this is, yes, about sort of colored revolutions. Right. Um, so that's how they define some of these. And so how do you tackle them? Right. And, I mean, from the American perspective, though, um, we're, we're quite caught off guard with this because we here in the United States – most of us do not believe that the United States played much of a role in fomenting any of these things. We tend to just sort of laugh off the idea that the U.S., that the NED or the CIA has any hand whatsoever in what's happening in Hong Kong right now. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to see that as just, just merely paranoid. What do you, th- you think? Do you think mm-hmm. that, that it's a reasonable assertion that it is a highly complex environment and that external and internal factors are very much fused? Um, I mean, it has become so. And I think it's, um, I mean, part of it is, yes, it's like that was the perception that Xi Jinping brings. And um, he makes it much more sort of, um, and that's the way he feels like it. It's like, and he reorganizes the Chinese national security enterprise. Think about this. Then it's like um, you sort of almost sort of bake your future into that. So but it's self-fulfilling. Like, right, yeah, yeah self-fulfilling. I mean, and a key part of, of this, and this is like in the redefinition of national security that follows from all of this, and that's encapsulated in sort of a, in the national security law that's passed in 2015. It's, it's more an, comprehensive. Right, it's much it's more, more expensive, comprehensive. Yeah. And it's and it's and the most important part of that is it's about political security and it's right. about ideological security. And in many ways, when you look at the U.S.-China competition. It never was about ideology in the past, and now it's become more of that. And so we see, even on the U.S. side, it's like yes, it's like when the CIA may not be involved in sort of um, in in Hong Kong or all the all all these other things, but there's a, a growing ideological side where you have people in Congress talking about sort of uh, well, it's like I mean, China is this existential threat, it's this ideological threat, etc. Sure. So it's self-fulfilling on both sides. Although when we tend to, when we talk about it here in the United States, there is this tendency to see it as chiefly ideological from the Chinese side that China is now 
exporting some sort of developmental model that's somehow rooted in, in Marxism-Leninism, which I, I tend to, to discount. I don't think that that's, mm. that's true. Um, is, but that you look at documents like document number nine from 2013, and of the seven sort of existential threats that it names, five of them are directly really about foreign ideas or foreign interference. Would you, would you count that as sort of in, uh, an ideological turn on the Chinese side? I mean, yes, I mean, I mean, under Xi Jinping, we very much see the emphasis on the importance of the Communist Party right. and, that, and how we have to tackle that is you have to take it in a much more holistic, a much more comprehensive way. Yeah, so I very much see that um, the Chinese see their competition with the U.S. is increasing in, in these ideological terms, and especially under Xi Jinping and part of this reimagined um, national security state, etc. Right, 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 right. um, that that the, ide- that the ideological, the political part, is at the core. Interesting. Uh, so people speak about the test flight of the J-20 uh, stealth fighter, which happened right as Robert Gates was visiting China, as sort of a moment when it became clear that Hu Jintao was not in perfect control of the PLA, that he sort of found out only afterward that this was happening, and it was sort of an embarrassment. Uh, how has Xi Jinping reasserted control uh, in, in ways that we see that, that are manifest to us? Um, so Xi Jinping has taken very much sort of a, sort of a, a very hands-on, personal control. He's much more active in sort of um, participating in field visits and site visits of both the military and the military-industrial complex. Uh, you cited a number, I remember, about that. I yeah. mean, it was really remarkable. I, I, I think remember. it's like um, he go, he, I mean, his, he's about double the number of, of visits that um, his predecessors made itself. And he also is very, very active on major military meetings. Right. Yeah, so it's like um, just his own engagement itself in these events, because given that um, Xi Jinping is the chairman of everything, this is political signaling that's very clear. So if he says, I'm going to spend a lot of time on military issues, it's very clear that that's a very, very important priority for him. But also it's like in terms of positions that, that he holds, he's significantly increased his footprint. So he's not just chairman of the Central Military Commission, which has tended to sort of be a high-level symbolic position in the past. It's also that um, he's taken direct command. He's the head of a joint headquarters Central Military Commission unit. So his level of engagement is not just at the very top, that oversees things. He's also taking control of operational issues one or two levels down. And besides just on the military, he's also very much engaged on, he's taking control sort of um, of the cybersecurity commission, previously the the leading group. He's also been very much sort of involved on on civil military due use issues. He heads a commission dealing with, with, with civil military integration issues. So it's like from a personalistic point of view, in terms of the time he spends, in terms of the positions that he holds, he's made it clear that sort of military um, defense and national security issues is at the very top of, mm-hmm. of, his, of his portfolio. So you say that the PLA has actually been quite successful in its push to modernize, and you attribute part of that success that the PLA has enjoyed uh, to this focus that Xi Jinping has now had on military affairs, which, as you said, is greater than any of his predecessors. Uh, How does this interest 
translate into more ef- efficiency, more innovation, uh, better project management, and so forth? How, what are the mechanisms by which C's new prioritization actually translates into effective modernization? I mean, um, so in terms of modernization, we can break it up into these various different parts. In terms, particularly in terms of their capabilities, right? And the capabilities are, we, as you see, in terms of the technological, the, the weapons systems. And then there's the capabilities in terms of like um, the human personnel, the human capital side, and how better trained they are and how better prepared they are to engage in increasingly complex operations. And then the first side is the, the, the posture and the deployment. Where do we see the PLA operating in it? And so in all these different dimensions, in terms of technology, and platforms in terms of the human dimension side and in terms of operational deployments, etc., we see the PLA and particular parts of the PLA, especially the Navy and the Air Force, less so the ground forces, that they're really becoming more proficient in a lot of these different areas itself, whether it's like on the parade ground, October 1st of this year, where we saw large numbers of of new generations of weapon systems, or we see as sort of um, in military exercises that they have domestically and increasingly externally, or in the reach of the Chinese Navy and the reach of, of the PLA Air Force. Right. They're operating at a much higher tempo. They're operating <laughs> in much more sophisticated manners. And also, and all of this is also predicated on a, a command and control system, mm-hmm. right? And so, one part of, of it is they've had a major re- reform since 2016 on reorganizing the PLA High Command, re-centralizing up to the Central Military Commission, reorganizing the regional command system from military regions to theater commands. Although, how efficient! And how much progress those reforms are, it's still not clear because they've only been going for, for, for the past three to four years. And so there's still a big debate amongst PLA watchers whether they've, they've, um, they're actually being very, very successful. But one area that may be more problematic for the PLA is about political control right. itself. And one of the big reasons is that as part of sort of this ideological Retightening within China itself. I mean, we've also seen that in the PLA, this emphasis on political obedience, going back to the Gutian spirit of very tight party control over the military itself, and that the PLA officer corps needs to um, devote more time to political study and to become better, not just expert, but read in the process. Is this is this what these organizational changes have been about? Uh, things like, you know, this new leading group or the National Security Commission. How should we understand that? And I mean, um, is that primarily for the reassertion of ideological control or I mean, I mean the National Security Commission is dealing with broader security issues within the society. It doesn't really deal much with the military. So it's it's the military reforms primarily sort of um, the reorganization of the political control apparatus. One of the um, areas that I have even bigger concerns of in terms of how good the PLA is as a military outfit is that um, it's the anti-corruption issue, right? So in the past, you had within the PLA, 
So they come one group watching the other group, which mm-hmm. is one group was the political commissars, and their job was to watch over the war fighters. Right. And then um, when Xi Jinping came to power, he launched this anti-corruption campaign, and one of the results was that he found out that the political commissars and the whole range, um, they were the least trustworthy because they were more corrupt. And so what Xi Jinping um, has done is that, um, so he's put in place another group to watch over the watchers who watch over the war fighters. <laughs> so he's the disciplinary um, inspection apparatus. So now you have two groups who are watching um, each other, who are watching over the PLA uh, itself. And sort of that tends to make you wonder about the cohesiveness and about how much time then do the warfighters get to really spend on what they're doing. And so usually in a professional organization, when you have layers upon layers of bureaucracy and you have issues about trust, that sort of undermines um, your actual effectiveness at the very end. So even though you may be technologically much more pro-efficient, even though you're able to exercise and do lots of other things, at the very heart, this issue about trust and sort of accountability, I think is contradictory to a lot of these moves to military yeah, organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But beyond that, this new military organization with this like leading group on uh, defense and military reform, they have really put it into high gear, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Um, you, you detail in one of your writings, I, I think it was from a chapter from a forthcoming book, how uh, Xi Jinping has convened something like 800 forums and seminars involving 700 military units. You describe the most far-reaching structural reform of the PLA in its history. Uh, they seem to be getting an awful lot done in, in that in that regard. Yeah, well, so that's the 2016 reorganization. reorganization yeah. I mean, I said, it's like, I mean, um, um, that there was a big fanfare when when that came out. Yeah, so there's all these reorganizations, the recentralization, um, this, the dismantlement of the general departments, the concentration of power in the Central Military Commission, the reorganization of the theater commands, the establishment of new service arms, like the Strategic Support Force, um, the Rocket Force, mm-hmm. and also um, one of the most important parts was the reduction in influence of the ground forces Historically, the PLA, the reason why it's called the People's Liberation Army was that it was about the army in charge. And the army in charge is very useful if you're fighting a continental war, if you're fighting a guerrilla war. But if you're thinking your next war, it's like all your critical security environment is not in the continental part of the country, but in the maritime, in the air, in the space, in the cyber, then you really need to sort of uh, make sure that the other service arms, the uh, the Navy, the Air Force, your cyber forces, they have much more influence. They have much more authority. They have more access to budgets. And that, in many ways, that's probably the most important part of these reforms is to say, so pivot the PLA thinking from looking towards the past, towards thinking about not just right now, but the, f- the long-term future. How much of that is reflected just in pure budget allocation to the different service arms uh, or overall defense budget? And maybe after talking about that, you can talk about how the defense industry is not just funded through through budget allocation either. There's a whole lot more that goes into it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about right. how it's mm-hmm. funded and where the money's going. So one of the um, biggest 
difficulties or, I mean, the least transparent areas in looking at sort of military and defense issues is funding and budgets. We only have sort of a single line item every year, and that's the overall defense budget. So it's not broken down by allocations to service arms like mm. we do in the U.S. and um, that's frustrating. And, and, and so it's so so we don't have a very good sort of feel about the budgetary allocations. But so we have to look at it elsewhere. We have to look at it in terms of manpower. We have to look at it in terms of like um, of what's what the outputs are in terms of new equipment coming in. And those indications are much clearer, where it's when you look sort of at the main weapons platforms, right? So when you look at the Navy, we look at sort of um, warships, we look at aircraft carriers and submarines, and we see major shipbuilding, a major production and sort of an introduction of these capabilities into the Navy. On the Air Force side, we see that also with their fighter aircraft or their transport air- aircraft, where there's these major introductions of large numbers. On the Army, on the ground forces side, I mean, the main platforms are things like main battle tanks or artillery, and we see a much, much slower pace. Significantly, sort of, um, there's, um, there's far less new pieces of equipment going into the ground forces compared to the other services. So that's an important indicator in terms of the budget allocations, etc. And one of the other things is that when Xi Jinping came to power, I mean, one of the reforms that he did was to announce a major cut back in manpower in 2014-2015. He announced a cutback of about 300,000 troops. From a level of what? A level of about of, of 2.1 million, so right. down down by 300,000. And it was interesting that most of these cuts came from the ground forces. Right. And actually, um, the Navy and the Air Force, they had their numbers <laughs> um, increased. increased. Right. And technological innovation is paramount for him, too. I mean, he's really focused. I mean, this is a, a real hallmark of, mm-hmm. of China's military right now. Uh, we, we talk quite a bit about civil military integration or civil, civil military fusion. Uh she is also calling for people to get involved more creatively to innovate institutional culture. Um, as as people might point out, this is kind of you, – you've pointed this out. This seems to many to be fundamentally at odds with his call for more political orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. How can you be more orthodox and sort of more innovative institutionally at the same time? Or, you know, even – maybe if we could extend the metaphor uh, – how are you supposed to uh, be ideologically rigid and at the same time uh, be technologically innovative? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these seem right. to be sort of mm-hmm. paradoxical to us. Um, it, it, it may seem, but it's like, um, but if you're a good Marxist Leninist, you can hold these contradictions and still do extremely well. I mean, it's like, I mean, in many ways, it's like, I mean, first of all, the notion of, I mean, there's in innovation more broadly, and then we'll break it down into the organization and, and and the technological, and it's like, um, I mean, I get questions all the time. It's like, I mean, how how can you be innovative in an authoritarian um, right. state? Um, because isn't innovation sort of um, all about sort of um, competition, creativity, a bottom up approach, etc.? And a it's very like an basic American question, assumption, question. right? But yeah. it's like, I mean, and that's and that's one motto. But also, innovation is a top down approach where it's like um, the ability to have teamwork. And teamwork, not just sort of in a particular, in your own small team, but teamwork in terms of the state and how you mobilize resources. And one of the lessons that the Chinese leadership often points to is that um, in the 1950s and 1960s, when China was in severe threat 
from the U.S. and then from they had to develop nuclear weapons and long-range ballistic missiles. And they did this through a, a top-down, what I call sort of a selective authoritarian mobilization approach, right. where it's it's the top-down, you you're very careful in what you select because you can't do everything. You can do a few things, but you can do a few things very, very well. And then you mobilize your resources. And so they were able to develop their nuclear weapons in a few years. And do you think they're doing the same thing now, right now? I mean, we they, You can see, I mean, Xi Jinping... Um, in, 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 in his spe- speeches um, um, on science and technology and and the military, he always talk, talks about, this is what they call the two bombs and one satellite spirit, right? mm-hmm. the Liandang Yixing, about how they were, they did this back in the 50s and 60s. And now they do this on other projects. They sort of, this is what in the West we call the, the big science of approach. And they said, well, we've done this in space. We're doing this on... AI, we're doing this all on these emerging and core technologies. And, I mean, it's been a mixed story. I mean, they've, um, yes, they've been making a lot of progress, lots of breakthroughs, things like high-performance computing, even on aircraft engines, which they hadn't done as much before. But it's like, um, but sometimes it's like in, in other areas, they haven't really done, been able to be make much progress. Semiconductors is a weak area. Right. So it's like, I mean, so, I mean, well, we've got a lot of incentive now to work on semiconductors. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> so we hear an awful lot here in the West about Made in China 2025, but maybe not so much about the military counterpart to that, which you translate as the Defense S&T Industry Strong Basic Engineering Project. What do we know about that plan? Mm-hmm. Is that really mm-hmm. analogous to, to Made in China 2025? On the rare occasions that it's been sort of publicly talked about, they've always sort of linked it in with the Made in China 2025. And I, and I presume it's that it's like um, it's um, defense and dual use projects that uh, emphasize in the Made in China 2025. And when, when you look at the Made in China 2025, I mean, there's um, a sizable number of the um, advanced manufacturing programs are very much dual use. Right. I mean, I actually think it's like, I mean, the, the Made in China 2025 is a small part of a much more important technological grand strategy, right? Which is the innovation driven development strategy. Right. And it's like, um, yeah. and understanding that, and then the Made in China 2025 fits into that. There's a whole range of other programs, um, sort of, um, and, and, and plans that are co coalesce that actually provide sort of um, an even better perspective about sort of where China is headed, both in terms of innovation and in terms of advanced manufacturing. See, so that's what you would characterize China's overarching grand strategy, yeah, right. innovation-driven development. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a very good way of putting it. So there's this one phrase that uh, in Be- Beijing uses very often that reinforces the convictions of the more hawkish. Uh, analysts among American China watchers, um, and that's the phrase civil-military fusion. What does this really mean? Is there a difference between civil-military fusion and civil-military integration, or are these interchangeable? Or? So, so, so Xi Jinping uses military-civil fusion as opposed to sort of civil-military integration. If you're an academic like me, we like to split hairs, etc. So we can sort of, you can go and sort of say, well, there's a little bit of difference here, a little bit of difference there. But I mean, in overall terms, they're all interchangeable. They're, 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 they're interchangeable. I mean, the main issue is that civil-military integration is a concept that has been around since the, the, the 1950s. And it's sort of um, this core idea of how you integrate the sort of the, eco- uh, the civilian 
and sort of and the military def- defense systems and it's sort of like this aspirational concept that that you know, but it hasn't really worked mm-hmm. so what xi jinping has been doing is like for military civil fusion it's more of an operational concept to how to make it happen because when when xi jinping came to power hu jintao and and jiang zemin they were been talking about um, civil military integration. They had their own specific terms. But everyone said it's a really good idea, but they couldn't make it work because in many ways it was like um, the civilian economy, the civilian bureaucracy, they didn't want anything to do with being involved in military or do-use issues because one of the things we see is like on the civilian side, it's about sort of um, integration into the global order, right? right? It's about open competition, on the military, on the defense side, it's really wrapped up in secrecy. It's very compartmentalized. It's like um, there's not much exposure to the international order. So you have these very, very different systems and, and very, very different institutional cultures. So civilian firms said, well, why would we want to get involved in a military acquisition system where it's very secret and it's like um, we don't know what is going on. And so Xi Jinping has been trying to sort of say with military civil fusion is to try to untangle and deal with this sort of fundamental misalignment between these two parts, etc. And this is, um, and to him, military civil fusion is a key part of innovation because if especially if China faces increasing um, sanctions, increasing sort of um, efforts to decouple from the U.S., from the international technological order itself. They need to have a better efficiency and have better ways to integrate their domestic economy, whether it's on the civilian, on the military side. And so especially... um, since 2015, um, Xi Jinping has been taking a number of initiatives to sort of to untangle this sort of um, this fundamental sort of um, misalignment mm. um, of the domestic order in dealing with military civil fusion. It's like um, military civil fusion before Xi Jinping came to power. It was sort of as I said, sort of uh, it was although Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin they talked about it, they never really did the walk about how important. So military civil fusion was a relatively low priority. Xi Jinping, when he comes to power, within two years, he says, this is a national priority. It's not a sector priority. So you boost it up. And then it's um, he launches a number of major initiatives related to that sort of um, special plans. Well, these civilian consumer-facing technology companies uh, many of whom have aspirations to list on on foreign bourses, they have a point, don't they? I mean, they they know better mm-hmm. than maybe Xi Jinping does how badly that phrase and that that initiative lands mm-hmm. on the ears of, right. of 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 foreign markets, right? Um, nobody wants to hear that this technology company that we're thinking about using in our national uh, telecommunications networks is mm-hmm. involved somehow is in, in bed with the PLA, right? right. I mean. It's- yeah, I mean, it's like, um, so it's not good optics. But the issue is, it's like, I mean, it, the Chinese companies are not alone. I mean, their Western counterparts, their U.S. counterparts, they're involved in civil military integration, military c- c- civil fusion. So, so, I mean, I guess, I mean, this is like where the ideological issue is, right? right. It's about, it's like, um, it's about the nature of the state itself. So it's like, I mean, so the U.S. says, well, we're a democracy. It's like, I mean, we're about peace and development. It's like, and the Chinese are antipical to all of that, etc. So up until the time that this 
great power competition really sort of steps up into full gear. It's like, I mean, defense planners at the Pentagon, when I went to talk to them about military supervision, they said, well, it's not really a concern. It's, huh. it's been there for quite some time, but it's only become a really concern when it's like China has been identified as sort of a, not just a competitor, but now increasingly as an enemy. Right, right, right. So what has been the payoff of all of this so far? Obviously, the PLA hasn't seen any real military action since, what, Vietnam. Um, certainly, really, I mean, nothing during during Xi Jinping's tenure in office. Uh, so what's the solid evidence in, for, in terms of, of weaponry, of demonstrable capabilities, performance and exercises? I mean, obviously, we can't base it just on what they parade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what What is the evidence that, that there has been substantial payoff in innovation? Uh, I mean, the subject, I mean, it's like I mean, in terms of um, being able to field a lot of these weapons. So they've now a lot, uh, sort of like the J twenty. They're in operational service. Yes, it's like um, and uh, so they're used on on a regular basis. They're deployed sort of increasingly on parallel projection operations. There's a greater tempo of exercises. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like I mean, they haven't gone to war, and let's hope that they won't. Right. But it's like I mean, and, but and, and Xi Jinping often also talks about it's it's about preparedness, right? It's about the ability not just to be ready to fight wars, but be able to win them. And we won't know until they actually get into an actual major war to see how good they are. But it, but a lot of this is about deterrence, right? right? About pushing the U.S. and other major powers. Back beyond the um, first yeah, island chain, beyond the first island into the second, as they come, and sort of um, and being able to secure their sort of their disputed interests, whether it's in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, and you can see that um, the U.S. is increasingly wary, and other countries are very sort of um, wary about dealing with China, sort of um, on these military issues. So it's not necessarily about being ready to fight and deal with sort of a combat; it's winning the peace. Um, through strength, so I mean, it's, it's it's what Sunzi said, and I don't really I don't really believe sort of applying Sun Sunzi <laughs> to mod, modern military is really that useful. But it's like, um, but it's but there 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 is that that sense uh, within within the the Chinese military. It's like, um, to be taken seriously is a key part, and they think that they are now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So China has been pursuing self-reliance in different military sectors, shipbuilding and missiles, aircraft. Uh, Some have argued that the current American administration's policy, which is meant to hamstring China in Mm -hmm. tech, is actually uh, hastening this process of of self-reliance instead. What is your take on this? Um, Yes, I mean, it's like, I mean, one of the um, clear issues when you look at sort of previous efforts, sort of... um, other countries that have sanctioned, sort of that sort of tried to force technology con- con- control, export control. Look what happened in the end of the 1950s when the Chinese and the Soviet Union had a very, very close relationship, especially on the military side. In 1960, there was a Sino-Soviet split, and the like, um, and Soviet engineers, Soviet scientists departed China overnight. And one of the key issues was that the Chinese wanted the Soviets to provide nuclear weapons to China, and the Soviets weren't willing to. And so the end result was that um, the Chinese were um, somewhat dependent on the Soviets, but within four years of the Soviets leaving, the Chinese detonated detonated the the first atomic weapon. And a key part of this, this two bombs and one satellite philosophy, 
was the importance of self-reliance. The Chinese have that experience, and they also had that. And then in 1989, after the Tiananmen Square cracked down and the U.S. imposed sanctions, I mean, it's like um, I mean, one, one one of the things when you look at the Chinese approach to science and tech technology development is that they're they're very pragmatic. When it's easy to get access to foreign technologies, the Chinese will go and do that because getting access to foreign technology and foreign capabilities is a low risk, high reward. Yeah, um, big time saver, right? big resource saver. But then it's like I mean, so and and they talk about self reliance, but they're the, but they're very opportunistic. But when their backs are against the wall, then the authorities say, "Well, we really then have to mobilize." And it, it's it's much more costly, and it's sort of um, not very efficient, etc. But then they push and they invest very heavily, and then self reliance they tend to begin to make a lot of pro progress. So um, we're at that point now. I mean, I think, yes, it's like, I mean, that, and you can see in a lot of the speeches by Chinese leaders about, it's like, I mean, we've got to sort of um, emphasize the importance of, of developing our own core and emerging technologies, and they're in, willing to invest a lot of, like, um, resources in doing that. So historians will look back and see ZTE's near-death experience, this whole Huawei uh, kerfuffle, as the, a, a major turning point. Um, it's, I mean, there's been a number of these. So I think this sort of pushes them in that direction. I mean, even before ZTE and Huawei, under this innovation-driven development strategy, I mean, and she was emphasizing the importance of indigenous innovation, right? right? So um, one of the things is like, uh, when you look at China's technology development trajectory, you can sort of, the Chinese have had these two models. One is what we call an absorption-based development strategy. Absorption-based means you get whatever is in the rest of the world and you absorb and you develop and and you develop your capabilities from that. And the Chinese have this model which is called the IDAR, the introduce, digest, assimilate, and re-innovate. There's the hmm. Zai Chuangxing. And that's how they did it with high-speed trains, with military aircraft, with nuclear Power stations with a whole range of things. This this IDAR model. So it's like um. So it says introduce, digest, digest right? right? Um, assimilate, assimilate, and re and and and, 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 the, and and this is a Chinese term. And so this absorption-based model model has been very very successful. It's allowed China to really catch up in a lot of areas much more efficiently and and faster. But un, but when Xi Jinping comes to power, it's like uh, well, IDAR was very good, especially from the 1990s to the 2000s on- onwards. But um, if China is really going to become under his dream of becoming sort of a world leader by 2035, by 2050, they really need them to move to a original innovation model itself. And so what we've seen is in terms of the innovation-driven development de- in beginning with the 35-year plan, but more likely we'll see a lot more in the 14-5-year plan. coming, And also they're in the final stages of drafting um new long-term science and technology development plan, the 2021-2035 plan, is that it's about developing a very new innovation system, right? Mm. And an an original innovation is fundamentally different from an absorption-based model. An absorption-based model is mostly about sort of um, about engineering, reverse engineering, sure. and training your science and technology personnel to focus on how you re-innovate what's already out there. An original innovation model is about developing 
your universities as these cathedrals of blue sky research, of developing the basic research and apparatus so that they can do a lot of a lot of the the building block work then that allows you to base upon that whether it's on on ai or quantum or a lot of these emerging areas and so you need to have scientists so and engineers who are not about well how do we develop these capabilities for commercialization they're more about sort of how do we develop ideas that is like um, that is an idea but it's not a. But we don't necessarily need to sort of commercialize it yet. So, okay. I may be speaking out of my American ideological predilections here, but <laughs> doesn't it seem like it's precisely in that kind of an innovative arena, this cathedral, this blue sky, these open universities, where China's um, mentality, where its limitations, not only just in pedagogy, but also mm-hmm. uh, its sort of political and ideological uh, fetters will prove to be gigantic obstacles. Yeah, but so that's the conventional thinking, right? So, right. I mean, and... and that's and, very conventional. Uh, <laughs> and it is, I mean, in the social sciences, I, w- I would say, in the humanities. The whole question is, how does this play out in the sciences, right. um, in the engineering side, where a lot of it's supposed to be apolitical, et cetera. And it's like, I mean, and so can you cultivate whole generations of scientists and engineers who um, know what the boundaries are. And so there, say, well, you can do whatever you want in terms of your research, <coughs> but just don't go into yeah. the, into political. The idea is that there are habits of mind that one has that are incommensurate somehow with that kind of limited mm-hmm. you know, research right. environment. So I mean, one, one final question for you, Ty, which is how does one conduct research in, in the areas that you work on? I mean, are... There are sufficient public sources available, or mm-hmm. do you need to cultivate your own sources? And- uh, I mean, it's like, I mean, g- going to chi- China, talking to people in these areas um, is very, very important because um, I mean, a lot of this is there's not a great deal of transparency, but there's a lot more than there has been. I mean, you, you're in my uh, my office, and you can see I have lots and lots of books. <laughs> Nothing but, right, yeah. but Right, and this is only a, a small part. But it's like, so there are a lot of very, very use, useful sources. But it's also, um, um, in the last couple of years, we've seen a major crackdown sort of, um, on, on this. And it's also some of the plans and some of the official pronouncements, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So you really have, you have to sort of um, triangulate your your sure. your your research on and Use this. your own experience right. and judgment. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. That's terrific. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Tai Ming-Chung. Uh, we're going to uh, move on now to the, the recommendation segment of the show. But first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is just chock full of great reads all about China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, and Zhao Yun work exceptionally hard bringing this product. It is of terrific value for money, so sign up and spread the word. Okay, on to recommendations. Tai, you may go first. What do you have for us? So I've been um, doing a lot of re- research, and one of the, the recommendations, especially when you're thinking about sort of a, the national, the emergence of the national security state in China, the U.S. went through the same experience after the end of the, the Second World War, where there was a lot of debate about whether they should develop their own sort of national security state. So I would go, with a, there's a number of books. I mean, one by Aaron Freeberg on In the Shadow of the Garrison State, hmm. which is like, um, it's a very good comparison. It's like, and it provides sort of a, an interesting remark about why the U.S. 
didn't become a garrison state, where it, it became a national security state. But because of a lot of political sort of um, identity about sort of a very anti-statist, very anti-militarist sort of um, philosophies and political traditions, etc. The U.S., um, even though it was in a Cold War, didn't allow the state to dominate and overtake. And that sort of provides sort of um, an object lesson about where China is. And especially as the U.S. is now, there's a big debate about how, how the U.S. can uh, mobilize and deal with China. Those types of conversations, I think it's like um, looking at back at some of this, these, these historical cases. That, that, oh, that, that sounds great. Aaron Friedberg, In the Shadow of the Garrison okay. State. Thanks. That's that's a great recommendation. Mine for this week is a new podcast that I started listening to called The Industrial Revolutions. Yes, that's with a plural. Uh, it's hosted by a young man named Dave Broker, who was apparently a political consultant on various Democratic campaigns here in California. Comes from Wisconsin. He's got a delightful northern Midwestern accent. Uh, he's just great. He's, he's humble and modest and very well-informed. Uh, and his, it's, it's, I've been binge listening to them. They're, they're very, very good. So, uh, go, go by, say hi, give him some money, tell him I sent you. Uh, thanks again, Ty. Okay, that thanks. was just great. Thank I really, really, really enjoyed talking right. to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta, the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China, and our latest member, Strangers in China. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.